The Supreme Court is considering right now a case that could boost federal whistleblowers bringing forth wrongdoing by contractors under the False Claims Act. The case underscores the importance of intent and its relevance in these cases. For details and why it's a landmark case, Federal Drive host Tom Temin spoke to noted D.C. whistleblower attorney Stephen Cohn. Steve, tell us about this case. What is the Supreme Court looking at here precisely? Sure. So it's the super value case. And they're looking at what type of proof you need to show fraud. And the corporations, the Chamber of Commerce and the companies were arguing that if you could come up with a plausible legal argument, even after the fact that they didn't knowingly commit fraud, they could escape liability. So let me put it to a more understandable way and why I believe the Supreme Court will completely reject these arguments. Somebody believes they're defrauding the government. You have actual evidence of their intent to defraud the government. In fact, they did defraud the government. But somewhere along the line, a company can argue that they should be let off the hook because there was a plausible argument that they weren't defrauding the government. So what they were saying was subjective evidence, in other words, evidence of the actual people ripping off the taxpayer, evidence of their intent to rip off the taxpayer could be ignored if the company came up with a rationalization that it was ambiguous whether fraud was occurring. Well, what would constitute evidence that they intended to commit fraud? Say an email saying, hey, we're going to really stick it to them, but just don't tell the accountants, that kind of thing? Exactly. So in the case they were charging, the drug company was charging normal people, just anyone coming off the street, $4 for a drug but they were charging the government $20 for the same drug. So if if the federal agent just walked in and bought it off the shelf, they'd save the taxpayer $16. So there were discussions while this was occurring where the salespeople understood that they were overcharging the government. But once they got caught, once the whistleblower turned them in, with evidence of their knowledge. The company said, you know, we think the regulations were ambiguous at the time. And we think you could have plausibly argued that you could have charged people $20 for the prescription as opposed to four. Sure. But the people that were blowing... the lower court threw the case out. They threw the whistleblower case out. But did the whistleblower in that case have the objective evidence of intent there in that case? Well, they had the evidence that the people who were overcharging the government suspected or knew they were overcharging the government. And in fact, they were overcharging the government. You can't have a False Claims Act case, no matter what evidence you have. I mean, you could have a thousand emails about someone trying to steal money from the government, but if it's at the end of the day, there was no false claim being submitted there'd be no liability. You need damage. So 
In this particular case, they were overcharging the government. The people involved at the time either knew or clearly suspected that they were, because the False Claims Act has a standard for reckless disregard. Sure. So if you kind of know what you're doing is wrong, but you disregard all the evidence that what you're doing is wrong, you're supposed to be found guilty. They have a reckless disregard standard. They have a willful ignorance standard, whereas if you put your head in the sand and just ignore all the evidence that you're committing fraud, you can still be found guilty. So the lower courts had completely turned this on its head. And were essentially, as the dissent in the lower court said, they're just giving crafty lawyers the ability to permit literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of ripoffs to the government. And we're speaking with the non-crafty Stephen Cohn, founding partner of <laughs> Cohn, Cohn, and Colapinto. And there are cases that have come up over the years, especially in federal pricing false claims acts, where, say, you had promised the lowest possible price in a GSA contract. And it really was administrative inadvertence, where a price was higher than perhaps another customer was getting, even another federal customer was getting, but that was the price originally negotiated on the GSA schedule. We're not talking about a case like that then, correct? Exactly. In order to have the liability under false claims, you need to show some form of knowledge and intent. So when they wrote the statute, it was either direct knowledge, you know, email, we're ripping off the government, willful ignorance, which was really designed for whistleblowers. A whistleblower comes forward to the company, presents evidence of fraud, and the company willfully ignores that evidence. Essentially, it's a way to empower internal compliance programs. If an employee goes to the compliance program with the evidence of the fraud, the company better take a serious look at it. And the third way is reckless disregard, meaning the evidence is in front of you and you choose to ignore it. So you have to have that. If it's a simple mistake, there's no liability. And the False Claims Act is not a negligence law. If you make a mistake, if you didn't really understand, but as the dissent to the lower court, you know, the court that went up on appeal said, that the federal courts, quote, cannot tolerate deception. So if you have evidence that the company was engaged in deception, you have to find liability. And I attended the oral argument, and we did file, you know, an amicus brief in the case. We studied it carefully. The judges were like, they were essentially saying this is a simple case. It's like, yeah, if you have evidence of deception, you can't ignore it. But what's really troubling is how were these arguments even raised? You know, how could the Chamber of Commerce legitimately come before the court and say you should ignore evidence of deception in a fraud case? That has never happened before. I mean, you can't do that. It sounds like those sirens weren't for you. Maybe they're headed to the Chamber of Commerce or something on that case. <laughs> but just a practical question. Suppose there is a clerk or a cost accountant or a billing clerk, and they are charging $20 to the government and $4 to the walk-in or the subscription drug recipient, whatever the case might be, and they don't know any better. 
is that person in trouble or is it this the person that gave them the fraudulent price list the one in trouble and I guess the corporate officers would be part of it also. Okay, you just follow up the chain. So if the person at the lowest level is simply following the instructions, they're not going to be in trouble. If they're making a mistake, they're not going to be in trouble. But then you have to go to the knowledge of the person who created the instructions. Now, if they created those instructions in good faith, relying upon the regulations, they're not going to be in trouble, even if it's wrong. But if at the time they were drafting those regulations, a whistleblower inside the company stepped forward and said, you are deceiving the government, you know, and explained why, with plausible reasons, you know, why they were deceiving the government, that drafter, the company, would either have to address those issues or face potential liability if it turns out the whistleblower was correct. In that situation, you're in a case of either willful ignorance, they're just going to ignore the bad side, or reckless disregard for the law. Now, you can take it one step further, which is actual knowledge. The person who's drafting the regulations had actual knowledge that they were doing an act of deception. But the False Claims Act covers reckless disregard, willful ignorance, and actual knowledge. So what's significant here, what came out in the court argument, when you're dealing with the government, you have certain legal and ethical responsibilities. It's not like you're a salesperson hustling up the best price you can get, you know, selling a used car. That's not the deal. There are rules for doing government contracting. There are rules if you're taking money literally from all of the people of the United States, all of the taxpayers, you're taking that money, you're under certain ethical and legal rules. One of those is you can't ignore the bad facts. And just a quick question, when will we likely hear a decision from the Supreme Court? This decision will be issued sometime probably in June before the court exits for the year, it seemed from the argument that most of the justices were going to overturn the lower court. And this is something else that's very important. The False Claims Act is the most effective anti-fraud law in the United States. It's recovered over $70 billion cash from fraudsters, not theoretical liabilities or judgments that were never collected, actual $70 billion. And the best estimate for the deterrent value, in other words, companies acting honestly because they're afraid of getting caught, is at least $700 billion, 10 times the amount. So the law has been super effective. And I think the justices understood that. They understood that by lowering all these standards and making it way harder to prove the fraud would really hurt the federal treasury and all honest taxpayers. Stephen Cohn is a partner at the law firm Cohn Cohn Colapinto, speaking with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. 
David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I 
really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it 
you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.